Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My guest this episode is Kip Manley. Kip is the author of the acclaimed and long-running web serial The City of Roses, which is published as a series of serialized novelettes. Kip also has a long history with the genre and a small child who he's been introducing to the genre and occasionally blogging about. And since I also have uh, one small child, the four-and-a-half-year-old tadpole, is taking in some of the stories, although I haven't read very many things to her. Sprout is not yet at that stage, but I figured I would talk to Kip about introducing our kids to the genre and their relationships both to stories that we're telling and books that we're reading. So, Kip, welcome and thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Hi. I will start by asking you to just tell us a little bit about how you came to science fiction and fantasy and some of the important books for you. It's difficult to pin a very first book. Um, I mean, one of the things that I remember is that my books had a copy of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings on the shelf. A little out of character for them, but they had them, and, and I, I did uh, read those. But at about the same time, we were living in Kentucky, very far out in the middle of nowhere. Trips to go get books would be few and infrequent, um, but I already had an enormous number. And one of them, my mother comes back from Louisville or somewhere, and she had uh, a copy of the Foundation Trilogy, um, Isaac Asimov, of course, and a copy of The Great King by Susan Cooper, without any of the other books in the uh, in the Dark oh, yeah. sequence. And... I just, I remember that particular dyad, diptych, whatever you want to call it, very vividly. And the one that stuck, the one that just really sunk in was the Grey King. That's what infected. That's what took hold. Mm-hmm. Asimov just didn't stand a chance, I guess. But I'm, I'm mentioning those two at about the same time. I'm getting into the John Carter books. I uh, remember also vague things. I think the cartoonist was Gay and Wilson was illustrating a bunch of children's books at the time. Leonard Looney or something like that about aliens who live on the moon and the adventures that they had. Harry the Fat Bear Spy. All of these things are kind of coming together all at about the same time. And it's making that sort of syncretistic mishmash of pulp, you know, the, mm-hmm. the thing that isn't fantasy, that isn't science fiction, that is just adventure stuff out there, away. And so that's what I got hooked on. But the Susan Cooper, the Asimov, those two kind of, it, it was almost like, you have a choice. And, <laughs> you know, which door will you walk through? And I ended up going through the Susan Cooper door. So here I am, a fantasist. You, you chose the portal instead of the <laughs> rocket. <laughs> Pretty much. So that's kind of my origin story. Okay. Uh, Did- um, oh, and, and I mean... Yeah, just other things. Long car rides at this point, always taking books along. I also remember the Raymond Faced books. Yeah, I got... Edition. Yeah, yeah and it, I think I read Apprentice and Master and then kind of yeah. drifted away from them. It first came out as a single giant book, and then they broke it up. And I, I got it when it was a giant book, because this was when, oh my goodness, it's a giant book. But also, at the same time, Stephen Bruce. No, okay. wait, that's coming. that's coming a little later. I am going all over the map here. And then, again, it, it's sort of like this in my head fits in the same category, but is neither fantasy nor science fiction. Ellen Raskin, huge impact. The Westing game, uh, Figs and Phantoms, the mysterious disappearance of a Leon, I mean, Noel. These books, they're all, I don't know, making a world, making a world out of words. This was, this was what was important. Okay. And I've gone all over the map, but there we go. Are you primarily a genre reader? Do you read fairly omnivorously fiction, nonfiction? 
At this point, the vast majority of what I read at this point is online. Um, I, I mean, I have books. I read books, but the focus has been less on that lately. And part of that is just the way we live today. Mm-hmm. Part of that is keeping up with the conversations that I'm interested in. Um, a lot of that is research for the things that I'm looking for. It's easier to find online. I don't have or don't make as much time for just sitting down to read a novel lately. Mm-hmm. So like right now, what I'm in the middle of reading is um, Soviet Towns and Warner's Kingdoms of Elfin. And I'm mm-hmm. kind of parceling that out. It's it's loosely connected short stories published in 1980. Something is like, I think the last book that she um, put out. It just, uh, I'll read one of these stories and then stop and feel utterly useless and bereft for a while because she is so good. <laughs> um, the other thing I'm working through right now is I finally got around to reading David Graeber's Debt, the uh, first 5,000 years uh, okay. that I was reading, you know, three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little behind the times when it comes to the paper reading. And did you have a period of leaving and coming back, or have you have you had pivotal moments that have shifted what you were interested in, what you wanted to read? Hmm. Well, uh, I still am primarily interested in, again, those books that make worlds out of words, for want of a better term. Okay. Slightly pretentious. Genre... It's such a big mess. <laughs> uh, I, I, what, like, like, for instance, when I was first um, sitting down with City of Roses and then starting to realize, okay, I need to kind of get a handle on, take this as, a, as an example, urban fantasy, what's become of it? Because what I started to think of it as and what I was dealing with it as was what had started to come out in, at the end of the 80s, War for the Oaks, uh, Emma Bull. And the border town books, Ellen Kushner. This sort of thing was, was what I was thinking of. And I start to look around and I discover, of course, that it has changed, it changed and not changed in the way that it will. And it's now more paranormal romance. That is what urban fantasy has become. Right. That's when I think of it. That's what I think of. Right. And so, um, I went through a period where I was, okay, well, I, I need to try to figure out what people are doing. And so I got the Mercy Thompson books and the Jim Butcher books, uh, Dresden Files. I got a couple of those. Mm-hmm. Jane Heller, these various, um, urban fantasy series and being dissatisfied with them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you, you're trying to pick them apart as an intellectual exercise to see what makes them tick, why they do what they do, and you know, starting to develop a sort of a theory of how it starts off at one place, this sort of growth of things coming vaguely horror, vaguely what uh, Farrah Mendelssohn referred to as the intrusion fantasy, all of that, and gets distorted by the dual impact of Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm-hmm. and uh, the Vampire the Masquerade role-playing game. So you, you were reading it's, urban fantasy to try yeah. to figure out what urban fantasy had become. Yeah. So you have this dual reaction where on, on the one hand, you have genre as a marketing category, which is sort of the thing that, you know, you say urban fantasy and you immediately think, okay, it's got the book cover. It's got the woman standing with her back to us and you right. can't make out her face. And she's, you know, all of that that sort of predetermined the marketing category. And it becomes very constraining and very difficult to talk about or even enjoy something in that sense because it is so determined, Mm -hmm. defined. But at the same time, you can't talk about a work without talking about all the things that it's in conversation with, the genre that it's in. Right. 
it, it's such a, a, a difficult, tricky, silly, stupid word. But, but you know, at the same time, I, I come back to the fact that, you know, I'm trying to think of what unites all of these things that I enjoy that aren't science fiction, that aren't fantasy, that, or that are one or are the other, but they're still the same thing and what they do and how they work. And I have a very conflicted relationship with attempting to be able to generalize about them, particularize specific things. You know, it's the joy and the wonder of thinking about the thing that you do. You mm -hmm. never come to an answer. You never come to a solution. You're always, you know, I'm over here now and it looks different from this perspective and look at that. Um, maybe I'll go over there next. And mm -hmm. so the question was, have I always been enamored of or within genre to a certain extent Yes, I suppose. From a very young age all the way up, it's always been, you know, I want the stuff beyond the fields we know, that that thing. I'm going to go over there and see what happens next. And while, you know, one can't help but be impressed by taking with books that don't do that, still, it's not, it's not where the primary impulse goes. Before I get to actually reading stories with our kids, Charles Pesur has three short story recommendations centered around cooking. Hi everybody and welcome back. I'm Charles Pesur and we're going to be talking about some short fiction today. Today's topic actually, like, where my recommendation is going is something that is near and dear to my heart and that is cooking. And I love cooking so much. Cooking is one of my favorite things, food is one of my favorite things, and so these stories are sort of like fairly recent and involve excellent uses of food and cooking in speculative fiction. The earliest one of these that I want to talk about is from the sadly defunct Cross Genres magazine. Um, this one in their August uh, Portals issue, which was an incredible issue. Uh, this particular story I feel like I almost overlooked to some degree because uh, it was in the same issue as one of my favorite stories of the year. But this one, Where Do You Go To My Lovely by Yusra Amjad is incredibly good. It is short. It is about a woman who can transport people with her food. And it's this back and forth between her and her nephew examining her powers and getting to the heart of what she's doing. And it's an excellent examination of food's power to transport people to specific places and times in their memory and, and how that gets translated and how that sort of differs from person to person. It's an incredible story, and I recommend you all go check that one out. The second story that I want to talk about is from November's Clark's World magazine, and it is so much cooking by Naomi Kritzer, and this story is one that is more like geographically near and dear to where I am, because it takes place in the Twin Cities of Minnesota during a future where there's a pandemic, and there is a disease that is sort of decimating, or at least has created a crisis, and the form that the story takes is that of a mommy blog, which for anyone who gets a lot of recipes off of Pinterest, you will know exactly what I'm talking about, and the story makes excellent use of that, and in some ways shows about affluence in pandemic situations, and shows this family sort of going through the scarcity and dealing with taking in more people, and it's just this rather wrenching story and examination of this one person as she sort of makes it through a very difficult situation with food and how she relates to her world and how the food that she makes mirrors what's happening with her. The last story that I want to talk about is a story that was in January's very huge issue of Apex magazine, and this one is Soursop by Chikadili Amelumado, which... 
It is, like, rather difficult and very um, speculative, very imaginative. You get this future where all the soil has basically been pulled off of the earth and put on this ring that goes around where the wealthy lives and everyone else who's been left behind as a sort of punishment for things that they've done are forced to watch these cooking programs, both as a way of sort of like giving them something to do, because they can experience in part what's going on in the program, but it's a very good examination of how cooking can be an oppressive tool. And especially when you're looking at the last story to this one, and you look at affluence when you're, when you do have this, even in scarcity, the last story, you know, the, the ingredients being used, the way it's all been doing, and you come to this one where the same sort of thing, where a a cooking show has become this thing that people look to both as sort of like a aspiring, wanting to experience these things that are no longer available to them, wanting to be taken back to a time and place where they would have been able to enjoy the foods that they're seeing eaten, being able to experience them, being able to taste them. This is a very sensual story, meaning it uses the senses in very profound ways, and it's just uh, another fairly short story, but there's so much world building that goes on, and the character work with the experiences there are just very good. If you're looking for like more cooking-related things, there's a lot, and Chikudeli Emeliumado, who did Sour Sop, has done quite a few. In fact, um, if you want to go back as far as, I believe, June of 2015, her story in One Throne magazine, Soup, is probably one of the most disturbing cooking stories you will ever read, and at first seems like something where it's going to be like, yes, this is cute, there's a talking fish, which is the spoilers that I'll give for that. There is a talking fish, and it is, like, charming, and then you get to a certain point, and you're like, Oh, my God! And it's just very good. And so these are many different ways that the writers use cooking to sort of, like, convey place and convey culture and convey um, an attitude to, to examine memory and to examine where we are and how we relate to our food, which is very fundamental to our lives. Um, further reading, if you go to the book Smugglers, Octavia Cade has an amazing series where she talks about food and um, reading and writing, and very worth going over there and checking those out. Those are very dense, like, very long essays and lots to read there and lots to enjoy. And uh, if you're like me and ever want, like, a very good cry, you could probably go to PBS and check out their tribute to Julia Childs and... It is a very well done sort of like musical tribute to her using clips from a long time and I tear up every time I watch it. But especially in the context of a lot of these stories, it's interesting to think of especially like that being used as a torture device. But that is all that I have for this month's recommendations. I wish you all uh, bon appetit. Now we are going to pivot because you are also a father of a child whose name comes from a beloved childhood fantasy book. Yes. What was it like to introduce Taryn to the Lloyd Alexander books? Book of Three is the first. Okay. Yeah. I encountered them at the library and I think out of order. What was it like? Did you start by reading the book to her? Did you start by telling her the story? How old was she when she found out that uh, there was this character that shared her name? Probably about two or three. We, we had the books. We would talk to her a little bit about where the name came from. And the first book, we have the Dell Yearling edition, which has the cover that I had when I was a kid. You see uh, Taryn in his sort of Luke Skywalker-looking tunic and the leggings with his dagger drawn. 
and Arun, the Hornet King, riding past with a great red cloak fluttering. It's a very striking cover, um, especially with that skull mask with the, the horns. And so she was taken by that and explaining that the figure on the cover, Karen, that's mm-hmm. who she was named after. Mm-hmm. We came up with the name. We, we had various different negotiations we were talking about if it's a boy, if it's a girl, but, but we kind of fixed on the name very particularly very early on before we knew whether Taryn was a girl or a boy. We, we decided the name's going to be Taryn. It's going to be Taryn, and that would work either way. Yeah, and so it has. The main problem for her, of course, we spell it as, as it's spelled in the book, T-A-R-A-N, and that gets a lot of people saying Taran or uh, something like something along those lines, and she very indignantly corrects people. No, Taryn! Good, <laughs> good. <laughs> the first time that I actually tried to read Book of Three to her was when she was three, and she actually came to me because she, she saw it and, and she wanted to read about it. And at that time, she had an alternate persona, sort of. She was sometimes Batman girl. Because uh, she was okay. very into Batman from uh, Brave and the Bold cartoons. She would watch those, and she really liked Batman. And so but she wasn't that girl. She was Batman girl. And Makes Batman sense. girl was sort of the figure who was there to do the difficult things that had to be done, which at this point included such things as potty training. Mm-hmm. Batman Girl was sort of the, the figure that she wanted to be, she aspired to be. So she, she had the book, and she was looking at it and looking at the figure of, of Taryn on the cover of it. And she said, this is the book about me. And I said, yes. And I said, that's, that's Taryn. That's who you're named after. And she says, read it like it's Batman Girl. Okay. And so, you know, you, you, you get started. Batman Girl wanted to make a sword, but Call, charged with the practical side of her education, decided on horseshoes. And you start to read that, and you slip in Batman Girl, and you slip in she and, and her, and it just it made for an interesting reading experience that first time. Mm-hmm. We didn't get very far that first time, mostly because, you know, she was three and there were no illustrations. I have read the opening passage to the Tombs of Etoine three times. <laughs> we have not gotten any further. We've since read several more chapters. We've moved on because we, we do bedtime reading still as a nightly thing. We are starting to work our way into actually working some chapter books into the progression. The first one that we finished was actually, and it's another childhood favorite, The House with a Clock in Its Walls by John Polaris. Taryn was born on Halloween. Halloween is a very, very vital holiday for her, of course. So we were talking about scary books, and I was telling her about the scariest book I remember from when <laughs> I was a kid. And so she, she wanted to read it. And so we actually we worked our way through each chapter every night. There was, when we got to the point where they're actually summoning Mrs. Izzard from the tomb. We got to that chapter, she had to take a break. Mm-hmm. And then um, the final chapter was the big confrontation. We had to take another break. But we stuck it out the whole book all the way through. She was thrilled with it. Good. The Last Unicorn, because she has seen the movie and loved the movie and loves the theme song. We'll sing it mm-hmm. at the drop of a hat. We have not worked our way through that, but she found it very interesting um, with that one to listen to, especially the opening chapter, which maps somewhat onto the opening of the movie, but there are differences. And so she started to point out the differences and started to talk about them and how that works. Why movies do one thing one way and books do them a different way. We have had that experience with the animated Hobbit and the story of the Hobbit that I have told her. (laughs) And I have not been able to interest her in The Hobbit yet. That's okay. I haven't tried that hard. I, I am very leery about pushing books 
The, right. the hardest I've probably pushed are the Moon Troll books. And those, she, she really likes the, uh, the cartoon, of course. Watch it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. She likes the comic strips that we have, but we haven't really sort of worked the books in very firmly into any sort of a rotation or discussion. And I'm not sure what the resistance is on her part. We haven't talked about it much again because I'm a little leery about pushing too hard. But at the same right. time, yeah, that's that's kind of my first taste of, why don't you love this thing I love? I know. <laughs> you apostate. She's in first grade at Japanese immersion school. So she's spending half the day learning Japanese, half the day mm-hmm. learning English. But she, she has a couple of times now brought Japanese picture books home and read them to me because, of course, I cannot read a single character. Mm-hmm. I can recognize her name now in Hiragana. It's a little dangerous. We're teaching her a language that we don't speak or read ourselves. <laughs> and yeah. she's already quite good at it. <laughs> but she took great pride in, in reading to me from a, a book about a little group of acorns who make hats for all the woodland animals. That's great. Yeah, and and then mocking me when I tried to follow along. Her being able to do this when I could not, she, she was very pleased with that. One of the things that she got into very early on, the Octonauts books. Yeah, I know the, the web series. Okay, they started as, as children's books, and we kind of got them just because they were beautifully designed. So we were reading those to her from a very early age. Then the cartoon comes out. It's full of animal facts, which is something that she is sucking up with a, whatever she can get at this point. She's she's mainlining it because it's information, and she's soaking it up. and. She has me to read a book, and we sit down to it. And the Octonauts, they are a crew of eight varied scientists and characters. They're not the most well-developed, well-rounded characters in the world, but still, there's something to hang on each one. And so, Mm -hmm. of course, voices develop for them. Professor Inkling, who gets the querulous old pedant voice. Mm -hmm. And you have Captain Barnacle's bear, and he gets the hero voice. And so, you know, I'm doing the voices. And... I'm doing the voices as I'm reading them. She tells me, wait, Papa, you're doing the voices wrong. Oh, do you have to do the voices the way they do them on TV now? I, we, we kind of compromise. She accepts the fact that I, I, uh, basically her, her Papa is imperfect and <laughs> cannot do them exactly right. Now, do you do many sort of extemporaneous stories? In terms of structured stories, they come from books and movies. We have conversations. We, we talk about things and we spend time, for instance, you know, walking to and from the bus stop, things like that. And we're talking about what we see. And it's not so much telling stories as it is spinning bits about them. Right. And where we're working in myth and science and everything. So, you know, we talk about the crows, we talk about what we know about them from science, but we also talk about the murder of crows and what a scary thing that is. And there's kind of a vague world-building thing going on with the neighborhood fairies. That sounds excellent. There's a row of Arbor Vitae, which is a, an apartment book complex for them. She knows where they all live. The holly, if, if anytime you see a holly tree or a holly bush, that's a fairy bank. Okay. And so we've, we've talked about that. So it's it's less storytelling and more world building if you wanted to, you know, mm-hmm. draw a net around it. The storytelling impulse, I mean, I get so caught up or tangled in what it needs to do, what it could do, what it might flop around and do a different way. It becomes very difficult just to sort of extemporaneously sit down and tell a story. Mm-hmm. It's that old thing with, you know, I, I wanted to write you a short note, but I didn't have time, so I wrote a long one instead. 
anything you're looking forward to on the horizon and saying I either I'm really excited <laughs> about maybe getting to introduce this or I am kind of dreading when we have to talk about this sort of thing? The big thing for me right now, the, the one that I don't ever want to push and want her to, to come to on her own would be Ellen, Ellen Raskin, who I mentioned earlier. It doesn't work being read aloud. It's got to be secret discovered yourself. So that's kind of a milestone that I'm looking forward to soon to come to. Just, just kind of casually leave the book lying around and, and yes. hope she, hope she picks it up and carries yeah. it off. <laughs> One thing that I did have a lot of fun with Taryn, it was kind of like sort of my birthday present to myself and also her birthday present for one of them. It was a book that I remembered from when I was five or six years old. It was like one of the first books that I read at school. And I can't at this point remember if I had a copy of my own or if I just read the one at school until it was burned, however hazily, into my memory. I didn't remember the title. I didn't remember who wrote it. I remembered the vague look of it. I remembered that it was about these two girls, and one of them had a dog, a very lazy dog, who got kidnapped or ran away and ended up in a dog food commercial. Okay. And it was this thing that was sticking in my head, and it was this er-reading experience from when I was very, very small. So I, I found essentially a forum where people are describing books, and other people are just saying, oh, that's, that's such and such by so-and-so. And I, I searched for the key terms and found it. Mm -hmm. Something Queer is Going On, a Mystery, by Elizabeth Levy and Mordecai Gerstein. You know, found a copy, ordered it, got it, and just kind of holding it was one of those really, you know, Madeline moments. And here's this book that I haven't seen in years, and I have it again in my hands, and it's exactly as I remember it. Mm -hmm. And reading that to her and talking about it, it's one of her favorites now. It's basically the two girls are Jill and Gwen, and they're best friends, and they solve uh, mysteries. And it turns out that there's a whole series of them. They started off as being something queer books, and then at some point, somebody in marketing said, maybe we better change the titles. And so they ended up being called the Fletcher Mysteries, because Fletcher is the name of the dog. Mm -hmm. In this book, at least, there's a point where they figure out that the neighborhood nemesis, Peter Fernbach, has stolen the dog. He's the one who makes commercials. He's kidnapped the dog for his dog food commercial. So they're running away when they figured it out, and, and they start chanting, I finger Fiedler Fernbach for Filching Fletcher. That's what they're yelling. And, and it's, <laughs> you know, Fiedler Fernbach, Filch Fletcher, Fiedler Fernbach, Filch Fletcher. It's it, just this wonderful rhythm thing again as, as we're reading it along. But there are other things that it, it was published, I think, in 1973. Okay, certainly later than I would. But there's this marvelous point. You know, basically, the dog goes missing. The girls you know, go through the neighborhood, canvassing the neighborhood, looking for him, and determine that it must be Fernbach who took Fletcher. And they're figuring this out toward the end of the day, and it's kind of getting late. And there's this really extraordinarily odd moment. You know, it's, it's getting dark, said Jill. My mother will be worried. So they're going to meet in the morning and follow him. It's this you know typical kids' adventure story plot. But the, immediately the, the problems are about he's going to go to work in his car. We have school. And Gwen, who is kind of the sarcastic friend, takes a moment and, and she has this habit of tapping on her braces whenever she's thinking. So she's tapping on her braces and she says, your mother's okay, isn't she? And Jill says, yeah, she's okay. Well, we need her. And then they go and tell Jill's mother all about the story. And it's this really weird rupture in the genre because ordinarily, of course, a kid's adventure, you have it as a kid and you don't go and drag right. in authority yeah. figures. 
they go to Jill's mother. Jill's mother, it's obviously it's, it's set in, in Westchester or Connecticut. Jill's mother works in the city, but she's also very obviously a single mother. Jill doesn't have another parent on the scene. Mm-hmm. Jill's mother listens to this and says, okay, yeah, I can get out of work. I'll write you a note to get you out of school and we'll follow Fernbach and find Fletcher. And it's just this wonderfully, <laughs> just this rupture of how the story is supposed to go. And it, it, it was uh, something that I hadn't noticed, of course, as a five-year-old, mm-hmm. but something that really just boomed when I read it for the first time. And it's, whoa, this book is doing something strange that stuck with me. That, yeah, I don't know. It was pretty cool. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. Again, talking about just sort of the the raw elements of language. I I don't think that it is a real, true, and legitimate memory. It's something that is kind of part of family lore. My sister was born when I was three. I would start to read to her when she was an infant. And I think a lot of what I was doing then was merely, you know, picking up a book and reciting what I remembered from it. Although the family lore is basically that I learned to read when I was three years old. But I do roughly about the same time just have this memory of the page of Go Dog Go resolving itself into the words that my father was saying. And it's kind of like, okay, this is, this is like, the moment when you figure out that those are words that match what he's saying and that's how it works. I, again, don't trust it as an actual memory, but I still have this sensation of that a very specific moment, a very specific page of learning how to read on go, on go. Actual, actual trustworthy memory or not, that, that sounds, that sounds pretty amazing and extraordinary. It's, it, it was, it, and so go, on go has always been just, you know, again, another one of those books that's like, okay, it's it's totemic, it's something on the shelf. And so that's something, again, read to her from a very early age. She's very fond of the, um, hello, hello, do you like my hat? I do not like your hat. Goodbye, goodbye. She, she likes us to take turns reading those lines. So she'll mm-hmm. be one dog, I'll be the other dog, things like that. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.